just take a deep breath and just do what feels right for you and trust and believe it absolutely will work out. Welcome back to another episode of Kel's Big Little World. Final listeners over on this channel, I'm Kel, and I interview guests from all around the world to explore their beliefs, careers, and day-to-day life, all to reveal that we are united in something greater, a shared journey through this big little world we call home. And today, we'll be talking to a woman who has done impactful work in the city of Detroit. She once said, I have never run a business, I just run my mouth, but the people that have given their support believe in me. Our upcoming guest has focused on bringing the community together by opening up a knitting and yarn shop and defending the law in the city of Detroit. With that being said, let's introduce our guest, Sally Moore. Sally Moore is currently Chief of Everything, aka CEO of Parkinson's Avenue, which is the only knitting shop in the entire city of Detroit. Moore's shop offers all things related to knitting and crochet. Before an entrepreneurial career, she was a successful attorney working from Detroit to New York, focusing on the racial disparities around the country. Sally Moore is an amazing aunt, a Cass Tech High School alumna, and an attorney, and a Detroiter at heart. Hello, Ms. Moore. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Cox. It is an honor and a pleasure. Yes. So in uh, 1985, you graduated from the Cass Technical High School. How was your experience there? Um, well, it's high school is high school. So it's a little, a little bit of everything, but, um, I have some very good friends, some lasting memories and absolutely the claim to fame of, of being a grad from CT. So from after high school, where did you go um, to college? Uh, I went to, I graduated from Marygrove College in Detroit. And then after that, I went to University of Detroit Mercy for law school. What did that decision look like, you know, staying in state rather than going, you know, out of state or out of the country? For me, undergrad was really just an extension of high school. I didn't have the experience of thinking, oh, wow, now I'm off to this next thing, it was just another four years of high school because um, kind of my experience and was that, of course, this is this is what you do. And nothing magical happens at 17. Well, yeah, I was, yeah, just barely 17. But, you know, nothing magical happens when you graduate from high school that you suddenly no, and I know everybody thinks I'm grown, I'm 18, I know everything, I know what I'm doing, and a lot of and a lot of people do. I'm very impressed then and now with people who are like, nope, this is what I'm gonna do, this is what I wanna be, this is you know the path that I wanna take. Um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, what would my life look like if I had been a person of that mindset? But I think for most people, you you th- a lot of people will tell you, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. And then I did something totally different. Some people are like, this is what I've wanted to do since I was, since I can remember. And that's what I'm going to do. But for me, it wasn't, oh, do I go in state? Do I go out of state? A lot of the things that I encourage young people 
in my life now to look at and consider honestly weren't things that I necessarily considered. But again, everybody's circumstance is different. Everybody's journey is going to be different. And that's the thing that I would impress upon you and anyone else in your circumstance is just take a deep breath and just do what feels right for you and trust and believe it absolutely will work out. How do you think your life would have been changed if you had that mindset that you have now going into college? It wouldn't have. <laughs> it, it wouldn't have changed a bit. And and we don't, you know, if you want to see God laugh, tell him about your plan. You just cannot script your life. You think you can, but you really, really, really cannot script your life. And therefore, um, I I don't know that whatever was for me, wherever I was supposed to be, whatever was supposed to come to me was going to come to me as long as I remained open. I didn't have to be any particular place. I didn't have to be in any particular setting because the opportunities and exposures that were going to be made available for me were there. So at what point in college were you, did you realize that going to law school and becoming a lawyer was for you, that that was the journey that God had for you? I didn't. <laughs> I'm ruining your interview. Um, I'm giving away all the secrets and, and all the all the guidance counselors are going to hate me. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't. Once again, uh, undergrad was a given. So in my world, that was just an extension of high school. That was just a training. Um, undergrad, a lot of people say, oh, college isn't for me. And I understand that. And I appreciate that. If you buy into a certain concept of what college is, of what undergrad is. So how do the skills and the values that you acquire in the academic space, whether it be undergrad or law school, translate to your first, I'll call it big girl job when you were <laughs> working in law and then and later when you went into business? Um. Well, again, because because I ended up going into law and and that was my father was in law. So it was somewhat, I won't say predestined, but it was a familiar space. So again, I don't know that I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I love being a lawyer. I enjoy the type of law I practice, but I advocate very strongly for law school because so many things come of that. And I have I mean, one out of five people, well, I wouldn't even say one, probably four out of five people that I know or socialize with or encounter have law degrees, whether they whether they do what I do um, or do something totally different or don't do anything law related at all. Um, I think it's a great skill set. Uh, law teaches you how to think. I personally think I it was a good fit for the way I already process information, take in information and process information. Another thing that everyone does differently. We like to say every people learn differently. Um, so, but I'm able to take that process of thinking 
um, that identifying the, that issue spotting, that application of, I do application of law, we lay it over the facts and, and case law that's gone before tells us this is who wins. If you have this, this, this issue and these facts and you put this law, this is what you're gonna get out of it in, in its purest sense. So I do that same thing with everything I encounter. I'm, I also have very much honed, I'm a litigator. So I'm a 360 thinker. I don't just see things from my client's right and we're gonna win because we're right and they're wrong. I have to, when I'm going before a jury, I have to look at this from the other side. I have to look at it from all sides. Otherwise, if I don't do that, I don't take into account how the other side might be thinking and how a jury might interpret that. And then all of a sudden I'm surprised if I lose. There should be no surprises because to really do it in a full way, I've looked at it from every perspective and I apply that to my business. Um, and I obviously do that on my job and I apply that to in interactions with people in general. I am not perfect. I am human. I have moments when I forget, you know, so I don't, I don't always take that into consideration, but I try really hard to apply it. And it's, it's just made all the difference in the world for my business. I'm pretty sure growing up and even going through law school, you've heard the stereotypes about litigation that it's more so scary and it's intimidating. It is life jeopardizing. What cases have you had that have lived up to those expectations? For the for the parties involved, all of them. I mean, I started my career as an assistant prosecuting attorney in Wayne County. So I was, I was, I was sending people to jail. I was sending people to prison. Uh, I was trying to make people pay a debt to society for a wrong that they had committed. At times they were, you know, just crimes against society in terms of drug dealing and, and, and things like that, things that just make our lives unpleasant and dangerous gun carrying, things like that. But, it, you know, I did a, I did at one point, um, I did a homicide, but I, I did not do, how can I describe it? I didn't do murder, but I did, I dealt more with, um, with vehicular homicides. So I worked with the fatal squad um, which is the department of the of the Detroit Police Department that's called to the scene when there's a fatal auto accident, whether it be by virtue of the accident or pedestrian involved or something um, of that nature. So I dealt with wrongs that can only be can they can't be righted fully, um, and and some that were genuinely their mistakes. They're, they're just mistakes, but they cost people their freedom. They may have cost them hurt, harm, and even their lives. Um, but I, and now I do civil work. So now I just deal with money, which makes the lawyers a lot meaner. Um, but I will say that again, it's still, it's, it's all important to that client. 
you know, they're the ones with the broken body, the injured body, the harm that have suffered the harm by virtue of primarily auto accidents is what I do. And it's everything to them. And under the law, they only get one chance to recoup their, you know, what they have coming to be made whole. And they're counting on me to, to maximize that opportunity. How do you feel like this or that career for you was fulfilling and made you feel like you were impacting society in the right way? You have to have rules. Any, any proper civilization has rules. Quite frankly, nature has rules. The universe has rules. Um, rules are what separate, keep, keep chaos. Even, even there's something called chaos theory. Even in chaos, there is there are patterns. So you need that, and lawyers love them or or until you need them, hate them till you need them. Uh, are we are the the bodies that enforce the law? We are the mechanism by which the law gets applied, and so, so somebody has to do it. You know, now do you want? just, a, you know, do we get rid of all the lawyers, get rid of everything, and now each person has to go on their own? Well, what happens to the person who can't articulate? Who, what happens to the person that doesn't even know that they're being wronged because they didn't know what the rules were? You have to have gatekeepers. And so I know that there is a function, a very strong function. And I know that there are people in my profession that abuse that that privilege there are those who don't live up to it and then there are those who who just try and and I, I consider myself one of those who just tries really hard and does my very best but there are those I I you know there are those who just do God's work they they get in those trenches and they do a type of work I couldn't imagine doing, and they are smarter than I could ever dream of being, uh, and and I'm glad for that. At what point in your legal career did you pick up knitting? I my mother taught me to knit when I was probably ten or eleven years old, and I it didn't I didn't take. I just was like, oh, okay, whatever. This is something else. I I wasn't very like savant I wasn't talented at it so I'd do a few rows she'd walk away I'd make a mistake and I was really fragile as a as a kid so I would fall to pieces like oh I'm an idiot I can't do this and you know and there's no and she's gone off to do something and there's nobody there to help me so I put it down and I move on I so I probably picked it up at 10 and I put it down and I didn't pick it up for another 30 years and then I picked it back up as an adult at a time in my life where I had time and I just enjoyed it and started doing it uh, probably in 2012, 2013. I started doing it for my own pleasure and, I, and most of the things I make, I would give away. So I got a lot of pleasure and satisfaction in that. And I just kept it 
as kind of a quiet hobby. There are times from in these past 10 years that it was almost sidelined. It was very much sidelined just because time, I wasn't making the time for it and the time wasn't making itself readily known. But uh, I've always kept it as a skill set, always had some stuff around the house somewhere. What led you to share something that you enjoyed and from your childhood with, you know, the city of Detroit about opening up a business? I don't know. <laughs> true story. It's a true story. I, I keep saying I should come up with something better. Uh, the truth is that I was living, I was working in, in New York, New York City, primarily in Manhattan. And I came, I was there, I left there, I came back, decided, eh, I, I love New York, absolutely love it, miss it every minute. Um, but I wasn't crazy about the job, had become kind of boring. And I was always back and forth. So I decided, eh, I'm going to move back to Detroit, see what's going on. It's 2015. There's all this, you know, stuff happening. So let me, let me go back and see what's, what's cranking. Came back to Detroit, um, immediately was just almost homesick at home for New York. Uh, decided I was going to go do something. Um, I the, the true story is I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go get a manicure because I do that in Manhattan and it always makes me feel better. And then I was like, yipes, this is not Manhattan. I can't get any of the things I like there. Um, but I had been bitten a little bit in New York by the, you, you quickly become, a, uh, it, it becomes quickly obvious that in New York, so many things that you go to stores, shops, whatever it is, they are independently owned, big or small. And you begin to see the trappings, you know, we have Ford Motor Company here, but nobody thinks about Ford Motor Company as Henry Ford trying to make a car but the reality is it's no different than Steve you know Steve Jobs and Apple these are all things that once upon a time were just little bitty things in somebody's garage and now they are major corporations that you know drive our entire economy and the the economies of the world so once i was in new york where i never went to a chain restaurant I, I it was like, why would I do that? I mean, we, I don't even know where you find a Taco Bell. Um, you know, you didn't do that. I didn't go to train restaurants. I didn't go to chain stores. And, you know, I Macy's and Bloomingdale's were there, but that wasn't where I shopped. So that's where I sort of began to see the power of entrepreneurship is that it's not so little if you don't want it to be. And so I came back here, couldn't, so it was second nature to me by the time I came back from New York. It was like, oh, I don't have any place to get my nails done. I'll just open one because that's what you do. Um, so I, that was the beginning of my journey. To, uh, the city of Detroit was going through its resurgence. There was a lot of support as there is still. There are a lot of programs, a lot of um, support, a lot of encouragement for entrepreneurship. And so I latched on to that uh, in all the things I know. I don't know everything. 
um, not even a fraction of everything. So I took advantage of every opportunity to learn about entrepreneurship, uh, moved forward, had plans. By that, I mean, had architectural drawings, had negotiated, had conversations and meetings and for about sites and how was I going to do this and where was I going to get employees. I had done everything for a nail salon, including had some funding, had some grant money, uh, had loans. I mean, I had everything geared up. And then one day I had an opportunity for a pitch competition through one of my one of the entities here in the city, and it had to be a new business. And I was like, okay. I did some stuff to my business plan, changed the number here, changed some words there. I knew the business um, because I'd hung out at a yarn shop. I'd hung out at a yarn shop so long, so much that I had worked there for yarn. So I knew the business. I knew the, the market. I knew the numbers. I knew how to put everything together. I put it together. I did the pitch. I won the pitch. It happened to be a fabulous organization with very few hoops to jump through. So unlike some places where it's like, oh, you get the money and now you win. Now you got to do this. Now you got to fill out that. I won. And about two weeks later, I had a $10,000 check in my mailbox. And that's when I realized, you know, which is not a huge amount of money, but it was the fact that I had people here local who I interfaced with who were now backing me. And then that's when my ego and my pride said, well, we are not gonna look bad. And then, like I said, I, I you know, had to say, well, now I, I went to Cas Tech. I'm not gonna have people talking about, oh, that's a Cas person. No wonder it didn't happen. So, you know, and that's what happens when you do things in your own hometown. People know you and, and you're like, okay, I now have, and that is, something, yeah, I went to Cass. And if I'm going to tell people that, I should also know that I represent Cass Tech, just like I represent all the hopes and dreams and work that my parents have, have done and poured into me and what they've done in the city. And people know them and people know me. And I'm like, yeah, I, I if I can't do it for myself, I have to do it for the culture. Now, during your business plan, where did you find the name that this is what you want your legacy to continue to? Oh, you keep asking me all the fun questions. <laughs> um, true, true story. Uh, there's a whole thing when you're building a business, there is a whole thing behind naming, um, especially. And that was going to be the name of the nail salon. But you don't want You want to look towards naming in a way that can be trademarked. Um, if you so desire somewhere down the line. So you don't want to name it Nail 7. I I needed something, you know, not the nail bar or whatever. I needed something. And I actually met with someone and a marketing and branding person. And she was like, oh, I'm doing a $100 hour. Meet me at a coffee shop. I was like, okay. And now she's way more expensive than that. And only thing she goes to coffee shops is probably in Japan for coffee. So she and I sat down and somehow we came out of that meeting with this name and she doesn't remember. And I don't remember, but we did. Uh, it's significant. But now when people really ask me, well, what does it mean? And why would you do that? Uh, from a marketing standpoint, when you say Parker Avenue, all people hear is Park Avenue. 
And they think when you think Park Avenue, you think New York, you think luxury. And so it has great marketing. It gives people a preview without even seeing, it gives you a preview, but that's also a standard that I have to uphold. So now one of the questions I ask every one of my guests, especially you've seen things from not only a legal standpoint, but the business aspect of it. Um, and what that's so big, when did you realize the world was smaller than you thought? Oh, New York, all day. <laughs> all day. New York, people are like, oh my God, it's so... New York is about... Central Park is smaller than Belle Isle. And they were actually both designed by the same um, architect. Um, and New York is probably only six to eight square miles. The The Manhattan, et cetera, proper. Um, you can walk it in the in the course of a day, but you can make, I would always say you can make New York as big or as small as you want it to be because they function in the borough model. So you don't ever have to leave your borough. If you don't want to leave Queens, if you don't want to leave Brooklyn, you don't have to. Everything you need is right there. So inside and out, you begin to realize that the world is really not that big. And the other thing that I, New York, someplace so international and so multicultural will show you in two seconds is that people are people. I travel all over the world and I do the same thing. I get there and I'm like, okay, where can I get the things I like to eat? Where can I get the things I like to drink? What are the one or two things that I can go see that I can't find anywhere? Um, I kind of don't like the internet for that reason that it used to be you travel and you're like, oh, I'm going to get this chocolate or this thing or that thing that I can't get anywhere else. And now everything is available. However, just like with my fiber, where people say, oh, well, weren't you scared of the internet and online? It's a tactile type of craft you want to touch the fiber, right? People come in the shop who don't even knit or crochet and they just want to pet the shelves because it's soft and it feels so good. Um, and so the world is very small because people are just people. We all want the same things. Well, there you have it. We've seen how seemingly ordinary people can take their dreams to extraordinary heights, even when they don't know how it's going to turn out. I want to give a special thank you to our guests and thank you guys for listening. See you next week. Bye.